First Samuel chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. First, First Samuel 19. If you do not have a Bible, we should have some in the pews in front of you that you can grab and, and use this morning. We're continuing our series through this historical book as it looks at the beginning of the monarchy in, in Israel, where we have uh, the first king, Saul, and then David, who's been anointed but has not been enthroned yet. And so we're seeing some conflict that has started already in chapter 18. So in chapter 17, what do you have? David and Goliath. So he's defeated Goliath. All the praise and fame is heading toward uh, David now. In chapter 18, we're starting to get a sense that Saul doesn't like David very much. One evidence of this is that he's tried to kill him already with his spear. This happens again in this chapter. So his, he's doubling down on his hostility toward David, toward the Lord's anointed. And so we're going to see how David handles this and who comes to his support. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word, <clears throat> if you are able. This is God's word, this is God's holy inspired word for you today. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against this servant, David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. But there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines, and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck, he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with, its clo- with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. And then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, and the pillow of goat's hair was at its head. And Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, that he has escaped? And Michal answered, Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Samuel had done, Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. 
And then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And it was told Saul, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. And then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Saku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be accepted in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, fight or flight is what I've titled this sermon. Fight or flight. When we are up against an existential crisis, meaning our very existence depends on our next move. And we're up against a force or a power that is more strong, more powerful than us, and will take us out. We have to decide, are we going to fight or are we going to flee? Fight or flight. When you read the text of 1 Samuel 19, on the surface, you know, it may just seem like a, a regular old political tussle between two political rivals that we see often in the world. This tension, this stress, this fighting for power and nothing more. Just just a political struggle and nothing more. And you may hear sermons on this chapter and sort of on the importance of having patience in the midst of strife or having patience while you lead through adversity or or sermons about having patience uh, when you're being unfairly treated by... uh, a superior. But if we were to do that this morning, we'd miss the entire point of the chapter. If all we do is look for some good advice, uh, for some good life application points of how to get through tough times. You see, the main idea here in chapter 19 is that in attacking David, Saul's real problem is with God. In attacking David, his real problem is with God. So for us, in not acknowledging the Lord's anointed, you reject the ultimate king. And if you'll recall what I've said in the past, David is a picture. He's he's pointing us, he's a sign that is pointing us to the Lord's anointed, Christ Jesus. And so for Saul to reject the Lord's anointed, he's really rejecting God himself. And the same for us today, when you reject Christ, the Lord's anointed, you reject the ultimate king, the Lord. And so when it comes to our relationship with God, we only have two options, fight or flight. And So what do I mean? Well, it's really quite simple. Will we, will we be like Saul and fight God? Or will we be like David and flee into his arms? As much as we read from the lips of Saul that David is his enemy, it's evident that actually God 
is Saul's real, real enemy. He's fighting with God, not David. And so the main, the main idea this morning that I want you to take home is that whether we want God or not, whether you want God to be in your life or not, one thing is true, you can never escape God. Whether you're an atheist, whether you're agnostic, or a believer uh, in deism, or uh, whatever you believe, you can't get away from God. So we can only respond one of two ways, fight him or flee to him. So we're going to look at this text in two sections. This idea of the futility of fighting God and the foresight of fleeing to God. And we're going to look at it from David, uh, from Samuel or Saul's perspective and then, and then David. So the futility of fighting God. <clears throat> we see in the very first verse, right, that Saul is dead set on killing David. It says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. You know, as we talk about the idea of sin, we can kind of misconstrue it a bit and miss what the real problem of sin is. You know, sin is not just particular choices or particular actions that we make, decisions that we make, that we look back and say, yeah, that was sinful, that was bad. Um, I was rejecting God when I, when I did that sin. It is that. It is particular sins. It's particular actions. But sin is also much bigger than that. Sin is actually a condition that we're all born into, when we're, when we're, even when we are little, infants and, and, and young, it's a condition we're all born with. And it's really a condition of slavery. That sin is not just individual <clears throat> actions, it's, it's a condition of slavery. It's, it's subservience to the little gods that will consume us. And so as we think about sin in that light, what was it that was controlling Saul when we're looking at him? What's controlling Saul? Well, the first thing we see back in chapter 18, verse 12, and chapter, and, and chapter, and chapter 18, verse 15, is that it's fear. It's fear is controlling Saul. He was scared of someone taking his power away, of someone threatening his rule, of his grip on the kingdom. It says in verse 12 of chapter 18, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and departed from Saul. And in verse 15 of chapter 18, and when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. He threatened Saul's power. He threatened his power, and he was scared of losing the kingdom. And so what did that lead, what did that lead Saul to? It, it led him to jealousy. It led him to jealousy that, <clears throat> that he was jealous of David's success. That he wanted what David had, and also he wanted David to suffer. Isn't that true when you're jealous of, of somebody or something? You want what they have, and you want them to have less than you. Right? That you want them to be under you. So say um, someone uh, you, uh, is more attractive than you. You, you want to be, you, you're jealous for their, their looks, and so you want to be more attractive than them, and you want them to become ugly. Right? It's, it's, it's more, than just, more than just wanting to be like them. Or you want the same amount, you want more money than somebody else. You're jealous and you want them to suffer. And in, verse eight, and in 
chapter 18, he says, What more can he have but the kingdom? And he eyed David from that day on. It says he eyed him. What does that mean, he eyed him? Well, he was jealous of him. He was angry. He was watching him. He was focused on him. So his fear led to jealousy, and his jealousy led to anger. He he wanted something to happen, something bad to happen to David. And so when we're angry toward people, you want punishment and harm to come to that person, don't you? It's a justice question. You want your righteous anger to fix them. In verse 8 of chapter 18, Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. The saying was that song that, that, song that the ladies were singing, that uh, Saul's killed his thousands, David's killed his ten thousands. Right? That is what really drove him to anger. So his fear led to jealousy, jealousy led to anger, and his anger led to hatred. He hated David. David was his enemy, it says. And when, when you hate someone, you despise them. You curse them in your heart. You write them off, and you wish the worst for them. And so as you see this play out in chapter 19, it's, it's not hard to see why murder exists in the world. Murder exists in the world when you have this play out. When you have someone become so consumed by fear, jealousy, anger, hatred, They'll do anything to wipe that person out. That is the roadmap to murder. But it all goes back to this idea that Saul had a worship disorder. He was worshiping the creation, the creature, and not the creator. He lived for his own name, his own own fame. That was the root of his problem. It was pride. But the bad news is that you and I have that same worship disorder, don't we? We're prone to do that as well. We're prone to have pride be what rules our heart. And so the question becomes, will you fight God like Saul did, or will you flee to God like David did? See, Saul's true enemy is not David, it's God. And the answer to our problem is not to just try to do the right thing or try to perform in the right way, have our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. That's the way the world thinks. God will accept me. I'm not as horrible as the worst person that I can think of, the first thing you have to do, friends, is admit that you've been fighting with God in the first place. Your entire life, you've been fighting with him. And instead of fighting with him, you need to run to him. And so we see this play out in chapter 19 that you cannot fight God and win. You can't fight God and win. So the first scene that we have here in verses 4 through 7 is Jonathan talks to his father, and he tries to talk him off this ledge of of, of this murderous plot. He says in verse 4, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. So he he uses this argument with his father and explains in various ways, and we'll get into a little bit later in 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 the passage, of how he explains to him this truth. But what is what is uh Saul's response? He says in verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, he made a promise, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. We know that wasn't true. We know that was lip service, wasn't it? It was a false promise to Jonathan. And so what we don't know is if Saul 
believed or if he had his, if he had his fingers crossed behind his back when he was saying that. Maybe. We're not sure what his mindset was, but we know he did not live up to this promise. It reminds me when we come to the Lord, um, we think about revivals, we think about making decisions for Christ. I wonder how many decisions for Christ were just like Saul's momentary promise. You see, Saul hears the truth from Jonathan, but the truth of Jonathan's words do not penetrate Saul's heart. It's like when you hear the gospel message of what Christ has done to save us from our sin. It's, it's not enough to just pray the sinner's prayer, to walk the aisle or make a decision for Christ and therefore think that you've put God in your debt somehow and freed yourself to go right back to living the way you wanted to live. It's sort of like what, what Saul's doing here. There's a great sermon by Paul Washer. It was like, a, I think it was a youth conference. And he said this, and I think it's true. One of the greatest modern Christian heresies is the belief that if you just sort of say the words, Jesus come into my heart, that he'll definitely come in and save you. It's one of the greatest modern heresies of today's church. That if you say the words, if you get the formula right, Jesus will have to come into your heart and save you. It's forgetting a crucial aspect of the gospel. What does the gospel message demand? Repent and believe. That's the formula. Repent and believe. That's the formula you see all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Gospels and Acts. Repent, change from your ways, turn and believe that you can't save yourself, that you need a Savior. When I was in uh, middle school, about sixth grade, I, I started attending a local Baptist church. Um, that was, it was like the most popular youth group in town. right? And so you, when you have the most popular youth group, all the kids flock to that youth group in our town. And so we all did. And it was one particular year where they were really pushing uh, evangelism to us. They were evangelizing the youth, and they were pushing decisions for Christ this year, this particular year. And, and I, looking back, I actually I did make a decision for Christ. I, I remember weeping. I remember repenting. And uh, along with all my friends, and we uh, would go through our CD collection. I know you young kids don't know what CDs are. <clears throat> Well, we go through our CD collection and we throw out the bad ones, right? We throw out Blink-182 and, and all the other bad uh, <coughs> CDs. And we'd say we'd never do that. And we would go to the mall and we'd get our WWJD bracelet. Remember those? But looking back, very few, from what I can remember or, or know now, very few of us remain Christians. And most of us, just went right along with, with the culture in those days in, the, in middle school and high school. And I did too. And I am blessed. I'm, by the grace of God, I'm a Christian today. That he saved me. But just saying the words, I'm going to follow Christ, or just saying I've made a decision for Christ, if it doesn't penetrate your heart, it will not change you. It will not change you. You must repent and believe. There has to be evidence of that faith. And so we see Saul doing that. We see that all he's done is mouth these words, and all that has to happen is war happens again in verse 8, and he's trying to pin David to the wall with his spear. 
even after he's made this vow. So we see a few examples show up of him going after David in verse 8 through 10. And then he, he sends messengers to kill David in verse 11 through 17. And then I'm going to skip down to this final scene. We'll, we'll cover those other two when we look at David's perspective. But David flees to Ramah. Who's at Ramah? A prophet named Samuel. And this is where Samuel is. This is where he lives. And David, he's trying to get out of town. He's trying to find a safe place. So Samuel takes him in. Saul hears that David goes there. And so he sends messengers, right, really mercenaries, to go kill David. He sends one group. And they go and... The prophets, the sons of the prophets are there, and these men start prophesying. They come back and they tell Saul. Saul's like, okay, I'll send another group. They start prophesying. Apparently they stripped down naked as well, and then they came back. Maybe they, hopefully they put their clothes back on. And then a third group is sent. They prophesy as well. They become overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. And then Saul himself goes and prophesies. They were forced by God to speak the truth. They were overpowered by the Spirit. And not only is Saul does he go, but he's stripped naked. He's overcome by the Spirit. The point is, if you fight God, if you reject his anointed, you will lose. You will lose. So that's what we see from Saul's perspective. The futility of fighting God. The second um, main <clears throat> viewpoint is from David. And we're going to see how he shows us the foresight of fleeing to God. Fleeing to God. When you first saw the title of, of the sermon today in the bulletin, perhaps you were thinking by flight I meant that it's possible to run away from God. Well, it's not possible to run away from God. It's only possible to fight him. And in your running from him, you're actually you're resisting him. You're fighting him. Remember Jonah and his strategy for getting away from God? He's called to uh, bring the gospel, bring this, this message to Nineveh as a prophet. And he says, no way. I'm going the opposite direction. And this word, he went down, he went down, is repeated in the story. He went down further and further away from the Lord, trying to run away from God. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. He should have remembered Psalm 139, where, where David writes, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall uphold me. Wherever we go, God will be there. And so when you run from God, you're actually attempting to fight him. The scholar Chad Bird says, Jonah's descent is the human condition. We too remember the Lord, but it's usually after we've gone down so far that the only option left is to look up. When we do, there is the Lord looking us in the eye with grace and mercy. For he is the God who meets us at the bottom. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're not a Christian, or if you're a Christian who's struggling, really struggling in your faith, even if you've fought the Lord your entire life, he will meet you when you've hit bottom. He will look you in the face 
with grace and mercy. He will wrap his arms around you and say, welcome home, if you run to him. I want to give those who, who don't know anything about running to God a little encouragement. You're going to find mercy and grace when you run to him. That is the foresight I'm talking about, having foresight, knowing who God is and fleeing to him. So a key aspect of faith is that it gives us the ability to trust that God will be instrumental in helping us in the future difficulties we face. David knew God's faithfulness. He knew it from the past. He knew it from the battles he, he was when he was up against Goliath. He knew it in the history of Israel that God was going to be faithful. And so he ran to him. So let's see the different ways that David is protected by God. And that first one is that intervention of Jonathan that we saw in verse 4 through 6. <clears throat> and in each time God protects David, we're uh, taught something about what it means, what it looks like to flee to God. And so fleeing to God, having Jonathan be this person who intervenes, fleeing to God means admitting that you need someone to help you. See, David couldn't have gone to Saul himself. He would have been killed. He needed someone to stand in the gap. He needed someone to plead his cause. And that perfect person was Jonathan. Jonathan is in a per- perfect position as the king's son to appeal to Saul to spare David. And so yet again, we, have, we see another example of Jonathan pointing to Christ, don't we? Let's look at the arguments that Jonathan uses very quickly with David, or with, uh, with his father Saul. It says in verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul. He said, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you. So what Jonathan uses is really three arguments. He uses a rational argument, he uses a moral argument, and he uses a theological argument. The first rational argument he uses with his father is, Dad, David hasn't sinned against you. He risked his life. And his deeds have brought good to you. So the rational argument is, why would you attack someone who's only benefiting your kingdom? Why would you do that? doesn't make any rational sense. The second argument he uses is a moral argument. He says, let not the king sin against your servant David. Because why? He hasn't sinned against you. This is the idea of the golden rule, isn't it? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So treating David this way would be unjust. It would be wrong, immoral. And the third argument he uses with his dad is theological. He brings the Lord into it. He says, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? So he's saying God himself is saving Israel through David. And you'd be sinning against God. So, so he, you see how he uses this three-pronged argument, rational, moral, theological, to help his father see. And maybe he does temporarily see, but it doesn't stick. The second way that we see David is protected is through his fleeing away from Saul in verse 9 and 10. Look at verse 9 and 10. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, And as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. But he eluded Saul, that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So what we learn here is that 
Fleeing to God means that you have been targeted by an enemy that you do need to run away from. There are things in this world, if you call yourself a Christian, that you need to remove yourself from, you need to flee from. This story echoes, I think, what we read about Jesus as well in the Gospels. And do you know those times when Jesus would just sort of slip away from the crowd? And you're not sure exactly how he did it, because it looked like they were about to kill him. In Luke chapter 4, it says, And the crowd rose up and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And you're like, how did he do that? How did he do that? It doesn't really say if there was some supernatural power. I'm sure there was. There was a mixture of of something going on there. But it's very similar here to David escaping Saul. See, brothers and sisters, when we run to God, we have to choose to flee sin. We have to choose to flee and evade sin. And what's important to see here is that David fled and never returned to Saul after this moment. David would never be in the presence of Saul like this ever again in their lives. You see, forks in the road will come to you. And you have to decide which direction you're going to go in. Forks in the road, they they come to you in life. And you've got to decide which road you're going to take. And once you make your decision, there's usually no going back. We have, God gives us these life choices but we have to decide which direction we're going to go in. And for David, it was to evade Saul and to run and flee to God. The next scene is this scene with McCall and David, verse 11 through 17, where Saul sends these messengers to kill David. <clears throat> and thankfully, McCall tells David, look, if you do not escape tonight with your life, tomorrow you're going to be killed. You need to get out of here. You need to get out of here. So what does she do? She takes... Um, she pulls a, a Ferris Bueller's Day off, right? You ever seen that? Stuffs the bed, get, puts the goat hair, puts the, they have like a little, apparently it's an idol, which is interesting. I'll talk about in a second why that's there. Uh, to make it look like David's in there, but that he's not. And so, because of McCall, he's able to escape. It's an interesting scene. And it has its issues. It has, it has some interesting aspects to it. But the point is, when you flee to God, it means that you'll have to humble yourself. And you'll have to sometimes be let down in a basket through the window. This is uh, not the most exciting escape for a king, is it? To be let down in a window. It's a bit humble. It's kind of weak. You know what's interesting? It reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. He gives this example of him having to be let down in a basket when, when a king was coming after him. And he told it as an example of his weakness. He says, if I must boast, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Here's an example. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Paul's saying that was a sign of my weakness. I had to be let down in a basket to be saved. But he he tells that story right before he mentions being in in the spirit. 
and being shown Jesus. So sometimes, brothers and sisters, to flee to God means we have to go the route of weakness. We, we do have to go the route of weakness. And you know, there's many things in this section that David probably wasn't proud of looking back. Um, number one, he didn't know about the plan to kill, that, that he was going to be killed. His wife was gracious enough to let him know about this. Secondly, they come up with this quite comical plan to stuff his bed with uh, this idol and the goat's hair, and it actually worked. But you know what's interesting? Why would they have idols in the house? These are household gods that were not allowed in Israel. But for some reason, McCall and him have these idols. Kind of shows where spiritually that things are not looking good in Israel. And lastly, how does McCall, what, what does she say? Does she tell the truth? No, she lies. She lies to Saul about what David said to her. He said that David was going to kill her. And so instead of being strong, she was fearful. She was fearful, so she lied. And so we have some people, some people get kind of wrapped around the axle about why, why God would use lying to, to save his people. Well, remember, there are stories in the Bible that we're not meant to imitate, but we're meant to learn from. What do we learn from this scene with McCall lying? It's that God uses human weaknesses and failures to protect his people with his own purposes, for his own purposes. He even uses lying, which we're not supposed to imitate, but we learn from. The last way we see <clears throat> the, the protection of God's anointed, the protection of David, is through the power of the Spirit. And we, we return to this scene at Ramah and Saul coming to get David. And what we see here is that fleeing to God means that you'll get to see his true power on display. You'll get to see his true power on display. <clears throat> so if you turn to me at verse 18 and following as we near the end of the story, <clears throat> Saul sends three different groups of messengers each time they prophesy. This is really good narrating, by the way. The narrator could have said, oh, three groups go, they all prophesied and came back. No, it's building up. It's saying one group goes, they prophesy and come back. A second group goes, they prophesy and come back. And then he sends a third group and they prophesy. It's building this anticipation. Right? What's going to happen? Third group comes, they prophesy. And so what does Saul say? I'm going to go myself. I'm going to go find David. And so what does it say? He himself, verse 22, went to Ramah, came to the great well, that is at Saku, and, and, he, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? You see, it's already setting up for failure. The other, the other messengers, they found Saul. They found Samuel and David. Saul can't even find them. He doesn't even know where they are. He has to ask. And one said, behold, they're at Nioth in Ramah. And so he goes there. The Spirit of God comes upon him. And he prophesied until he came to Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes. He prophesied before Samuel and laid naked all that day and all that night. What are we supposed to learn from that? It's this. That even the enemies of God will be forced to speak truth about him in the end. Even the enemies of God will be for, forced to speak truth about him. That's why I read earlier from John chapter 11, after Jesus has raised Lazarus, his friend, from the dead, this, this, the fame of this story, this miracle goes out. <clears throat> and, 
and the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests, they come together and they, they say, what are we going to do about this Jesus? What are we going to do about him? And someone says, if we, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come. They'll take away our place and our nation, our temple and our nation. But Caiaphas, he's the chief priest this year. He's the high priest that year. And he said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And what does John tell us? That being high priest that year, he prophesied unwillingly, unknowingly, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. It's an example that even God's enemies are going to be forced to prophesy and tell the truth about who he is. And so as we think about Jonathan and Saul, we see Saul's animosity. We see his hatred. We see his rejection of God. And what, is, what happens to him? He speaks the truth in prophesying, and he's stripped naked and shown to be helpless before God. Do you remember the last chapter? Jonathan stripped himself, not naked, but he took off his cloak. He took off his sword. He gave it to the Lord's anointed. He gave it to David. Jonathan stripped himself in abdication to the Lord's anointed. Say, here, you have the kingdom now. You're the anointed one. But Saul was stripped in submission to the Lord's anointed. He was stripped unwillingly as a way to say, you are the Lord. It reminds me of Philippians 2. where Paul writes that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow, brothers and sisters. Every tongue will confess, whether willingly or unwillingly, because the Spirit will overcome. And so it reminds us that everyone's true nature before God, your nature before God, my nature, that we are helpless and we're naked. He sees all, he knows all. The difference between those that he will save and those who will be judged is acknowledging our helplessness and running to God for salvation or fighting God despite our naked helplessness. Which path will you choose? Because you cannot be neutral about Jesus. You cannot be neutral. He does not give us that choice. Many people like to say, I believe, uh, I follow Jesus as a philosopher. I follow Jesus as a moral, good, good upstanding teacher. But he doesn't give us that choice. He tells us to submit to him as king. Are we going to do that? If we're listening to to Jesus, he is the king. And we have to ask ourselves, have we abdicated our kingdom to the Lord's anointed? That's the question he's asking us this morning. And so brothers and sisters, for all those who run to Christ for salvation, you will find safety, safety and comfort in the joy of your king clothed in the righteous garments of his son. I pray I'll meet you there. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your power that overcomes all opposition to you. It will all, all have to submit one day to the rule of Jesus. 
Father, as we looked at the examples of Saul and David, I pray you'd, you'd help us to every day repent and believe, to every day to look to Christ, to every day to submit ourselves before the Lord and to see how much he's done to save us because he is the king over all. Give us clear eyes, Father, to see Jesus and help us. We need your help, Holy Spirit, to do that every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.